most of your experiences have been related to space. And so I'm assuming have benefited you in your future jobs. Yeah, I have a, a geeky analog to this. And that is like a career home and transfer where <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you start you start close in, you have a low, you know, a lower altitude orbit, and you put some energy or effort into your career and you boost your orbit. Welcome to the Astro Esquire podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Johnson, and in each episode, I interview professionals in space law and policy to try and find out exactly what that means. First, a disclaimer. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast do not represent the views or opinions of any of my past, present, or future employers or clients. Today, I am joined by Charity Whedon. Hi there. My name is Charity Whedon, and I'm the Vice President of Global Space Policy at Astroscale US. Thank you, Charity. It is a uh, pleasure to have you join me on the podcast today. Uh, first question I ask everyone, do you consider yourself a space lawyer? No, no, I'm not a space lawyer. I'm not trained in law. However, I do consider myself a space policy professional amongst other things that I have done or do do at this point. Excellent. So as somebody who is not trained in the law, but is a space policy professional, what does this term space law and policy mean to you? So focusing more on space policy, you know, it means a course of action that is adopted, essentially. So it stems from the vision and values of those entities that are developing policy. If you're talking about government, it's about the mission statement. Uh, if you're talking about a, a company, it might be about the vision statement. Um, and space policy are those fundamental positions that are related to space. And in a way, my background has has taught me that it goes from you know, vision to policy to strategy, which is how you implement policy, and then to plans, which is individual uh, steps to take towards the the, uh, the 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 strategy. And in there somewhere is the budget as well, which can be thought of as policy that's associated with funding. Um, so all these these elements are the things that um, I track uh, with regards to space. Yeah, funding I think maybe is one of the items that people often overlook in terms of, as you said, space policy, because um, if you have no activity to design a policy around, then there's no point in talking about the policy. But uh, you need the funds to actually foresee doing the activity. And then once you see the activity is actually going to happen, is going to be funded to happen, then you need to have the policy to match that. Yeah, f funding is a implementation of policy in a way, but it's it's also it's double-headed as the policy itself. Um, a good mentor of mine, a shout out to Andre Dupuy, used to say, you know, I'd lament that there wasn't a, a, a full Canadian space policy at that time. And he'd say, hey, just look at the budget. <laughs> <laughs> That's your policy. And and then and then he'd take out his $5 bill, which in Canadian $5 bill on the back is our robotics program, our human space exploration program. And he's like, this is also our policy. It's written on our money. And so the, I think that's a really important element of policy is, is how do you implement it through funding? 
I was at a discussion panel that had representatives from uh, the EU and ESA and had representatives from the US and NASA and uh, our European counterparts uh, lamented uh, working with NASA because the NASA budget is inconsistently passed by Congress, right? We sometimes have, or more often than not recently, continuing resolutions rather than full budgets passed. And sometimes those budgets will change depending on the Congress and the executive administration. But uh, they said over in Europe, you know, we have these these multi-year plans and they're passed. And then that's what we know we're going to have for the next five years or so. And that's consistency. That is policy that we know we can structure around that funding. Uh, and they just shook their head and they said, we don't know how you do it in the U.S. So that's a good point. Um, you know, I'm, I'm the global space policy person, so I'm trying to harmonize and match not just written policies, but the budgets, too. And that's a, a unique uh, problem because the U.S. will do year to year if we're lucky. And then other countries will do over several years and some will be more ad hoc, like either three to five years um, other places. So. How do you harmonize those to create an international program or a multilateral program where um, partners uh, in space can come together and pool resources to develop a program um, for exploration or for remote sensing or communications or what have you? So that's that's uh, very interesting to try and align budgets as well and see um, <laughs> see how that turns out. And I want to get into your role in the international scale, like you said, the harmonization between different uh, countries and, and missions. But the other way you described space policy struck me as uh, being focused on the actor. Um, you know, people want to do specific things, and those actors then require policy development for those activities, as opposed to, say, some people viewing it as a, a passive. Um, sort of, this is the way we want space to be in the future, and and people will fill in with their activities uh, once they get to it. But your viewpoint seemed to be really focused around people who are acting today or planning activities uh, for the near future. I, yeah, I see them one in the same. Um, whether it's a you know something passive that you you put down on paper or it's something that you do day to day, you're you're acting out your policy. Um, I think also policies is broader than just government policy. I think industry, um, individual companies have internal policies um, on on space and where they want to uh, go and, and what do they want to achieve um, uh, for their their company. Um, so so it can be both government and industry or NGO at that matter and. And that's that kind of comes to a head when you talk about orbital debris and what everyone thinks should happen and what actions should be taken to mitigate orbital debris. The government government might have one policy, industry might have certain best practices or internal policies, and then the NGOs might have another viewpoint. So let's take a step back. Uh, and we'll get to what people's viewpoints are today and how you're working uh, between those viewpoints. But back at the beginning, how did you get interested in space policy? Can you trace this back to sort of a first moment of inspiration in space? <laughs> yeah, a very long, long time ago in a galaxy far away called Edmonton, Alberta. 
Um, I, you know, I was, I was uh, elementary school and um, you don't really pay attention to the space program in Northern Canada. And uh, as a child in the eighties, except for the space shuttle program was fairly well advertised. Um, and one morning the space shuttle challenger blew up and I was at home and reading the newspaper and it really struck me. Not the fact that, you know, the horrors of what had happened, but the small individual bios of the astronauts underneath caught my eye and how impressive they were. And that was the thing that uh, struck me most was these are brave individuals and gosh, wouldn't it be great to be like them someday. And so it just kind of stuck in the back of my head, uh, but grew. (laughs) And that was kind of like the aha moment. And it grew uh, on and on till I went to a space camp in uh, high school um, and then really kicked into gear of like, this is what I want to do. Uh, I realized that, you know, astronauts, especially in Canada at that point, um, they were either, you know, military officers or brain surgeons. And I know I I knew back then I was never going to be a brain surgeon. So I opted for the military option uh, and joined the Canadian Air Force um, as an air navigator. I have had a zigzag of a career ever since, let's just say. Uh, I started tracking submarines out of the Canadian version of the P-3 uh, and begged to do a space um, job after that. Only one was available, and that was at NORAD. Um, so they sent me to Colorado Springs and into a unit that was owned by Air Force Space Command called the First Space Control Squadron. And there I would be the de- deputy sensor network manager for the U.S. Space Surveillance Network, something completely new and different for me. Um, I stayed in space uh, from then on in my military career, went to the Canadian Space Agency to help them with the robotics program. And then my final position was as uh, embassy air att- assistant air attache for air and space operations, where I was here in uh, Washington, D.C., helping to develop you know, multilateral and bilateral relationships for defensive uh, space programs. So, so that's essentially my military career, how I got into it, how it developed, went from operations to, you know, policy to diplomacy. And then I retired and wanted to delve into the industry side of things. Um, this is right when the large constellations were being announced. So it was a very exciting time just to to, to leap off. And I joined the Satellite Industry Association as their um, uh, uh, lead space policy advisor and really learned quite a bit about the industry and their, their interests and the issues that they were encountering. Um, and then decided I wanted to narrow down my efforts. So I started a consulting firm uh, focused on three things really the best of my career, <laughs> international cooperation, uh, hard policy problems, and space sustainability. Those three things I would focus on. Uh, and I had been working with Astroscale for about a year and a half doing this um, when I decided to join them in July full-time. Congratulations, by the way, on that uh, appointment. Thank you. Thanks a lot. So, so I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, that, that was my origins. And then you know, zigzagging from military to industry um, and zigzagging from 
operations to policy to diplomacy, and now uh, back to policy. So um, I've, I've had uh, experience in a, a wide variety of uh, space issues and programs, um, and so it's, it's, it's been a good ride. Yeah, I mean, nobody who I've spoken to yet on the podcast, I think, has had a direct career trajectory. I think everybody's career, if you drew it out on a map, probably looks like a stellar constellation anyways, with all the different directions it goes in. Um, But most of your experiences have been related to space. And so I'm assuming that that broad experience in different parts of the space industry, both uh, military and then commercial, um, have benefited you in uh, your future jobs. You've just been building and building your expertise. Yeah, I have a, a geeky analog to this, and that is like a career home and transfer, where <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you start you start close in. You have a low, you know, a lower altitude orbit, and you put some energy or effort into your career, and you boost your orbit, and you keep doing this over years and years, and suddenly you have a very high orbit, like you know. high potential energy, maybe lower kinetic energy, but um, (laughs) you have a a higher uh, perspective on on the whole uh, industry and the the topic of space itself. Yeah. You you said earlier, you knew you're never going to be a brain surgeon. I I knew I wasn't going to be an engineer. So that's why I went into the law. So in the space industry, also want to mention, I've always had a little bit of a chip on my shoulder because I do not have a military background. Uh, and I really admire the colleagues I've met in the space industry who do come from a military background. Um, but uh, it really can contribute whether you stay in the military for your full career or whether you eventually transition out of the military. There are definitely roles for uh, former military personnel to continue in the space industry. You know, it- my military career, um, especially the non-space portion of it, has been fundamental to my understanding of space. When I was flying in the back of an aircraft in the middle of the ocean, I was, uh, you know, my head was in space. I just wanted to do a space job. And when I started doing space, especially at the Canadian Embassy and, and building relationships, all I could think about was how does the operator use space? How can I, you know, connect back to those that are, you know, leveraging space and, you know, rely with their lives on space. And so it it kind of flipped. And that was a very important lesson for me of why space matters for the military and being able to connect those two worlds. um, I I think that has been a big benefit of coming from uh, the military side. And also in terms of the harmonization of policies globally that uh, you're involved with now, the military is one of the predominant users of space. Uh, And even now that we have more commercial companies and even commercial companies that are offering services to the military, uh, space policy on a global level can't be dictated by one stakeholder over the other. Everybody has to talk to each other. Yes, and the mil, you know, especially allies and partners together, Canada being uh, an ally with the U.S. and many other nations. Um, you know, this this is a very 
tight-knit group, um, collaborative group. So it's almost, I hesitate to say, it's almost easier to conduct space operations in a national security allied platform. Um, and, and I think, uh, you know, like-minded nations, um, their militaries, you know, get along famously and have worked together in, you know, Afghanistan and, and other places. Um, and so policies tend to align when it comes to, uh, you know, space operations or, or the value of space for the ground support or the air support um, on Earth. So, so you're right in a way that, you know, space policy um, is reflective of military relationships as well. So let's get into then the current status of this harmonization. What, what is currently the status of global consensus on space policy? Hmm, that's a good question. Um, so the first thing that comes to mind is the 21 long-term sustainability guidelines that were produced by the United Nations Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space uh, recently adopted. Uh, I, th- I think that's a, a major first step on A, recognizing that there are uh, debris mitigation uh, problems and that you know, the global community should act and, and, and come on the same level of, um, you know, of understanding, if you will. And now it's up to the, you know, domestic or the, the nation states themselves to implement these uh, long-term sustainability guidelines. So I see that as a, a baseline, um, but already, you know, U.S. and other nations have, have domestic space policy that um, is reflective amongst allies and partners. For example, international collaboration is an important element. Uh, safeguarding and debris mitigation is another kind of common thread that I see. Um, the value of bringing space products and services to citizens, that's another kind of fundamental thread throughout many uh, space policies. And then finally, supporting um, domestic industry is, uh, is, is a key item, especially today when the industry is growing so rapidly. And what is, uh, if you can speak to it, what is Astroscale's role in um, the future of uh, space sustainability? So Astroscale is a private company headquartered in Tokyo, Japan. It's six years old, and its mission is to preserve and sustain um, Earth's orbits. So, you know, for the future of space commerce and exploration and utilization. So that's, that's its vision. And to do this, Astroscale wants to, you know, take action now. Uh, we all understand that, you know, debris uh, is an issue and that needs to be mitigated uh, and that there is incoming congestion uh, in space with uh, large constellations coming and, and more use of space. So what Astroscale is planning to do, this will be the implementation of that vision, if you will, is to provide end-of-life services for satellites. And what they hope to accomplish is to have uh, satellite operators install a lightweight docking plate on their satellites, such that if they die in orbit prematurely, there's a backup method for deorbiting it in under control um, that would that Astrosphere would provide that service. 
The second side of this coin is the active debris removal piece. These are the six decades of large pieces of debris being um, littered in space, mainly by governments. So we believe this is more of a governmental mission uh, for Astroscale to go up and um, collect these large pieces of debris and bring them down safely. So you mentioned the UN's space sustainability goals, uh, and that was propagated through the Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space. Uh, what other forum are there for international conversations and dialogue uh, uh, about space activities? Well, there are several. Um, off the top of my head, I, I won't be able to name all of them, but the first comes to mind is the IADC, the Interagency Debris uh, committee. And that's, that's based on, um, a group of civil agencies, uh, talking about the debris mitigation issue. Uh, there's also, um, lots of civil, uh, space agency dialogue going on. Um, when it comes to space operations for national security, there's the CSPOC combined space operations, which is, uh, growing. There's, there's, um, you know, the Five Eye partners, but there are more um, partners coming online. Um, and so those are the top of my head. And then there's a lot of ad hoc discussions, bilaterals, multilaterals. Uh, bilaterals tend to be quite popular, especially with the U.S. So bilaterals with, you know, Canada, U.K., Japan, uh, and other nations. Um, uh, it seems to be, a, a you know, a favorite to leverage the bilateral uh, cooperation opportunities as well. Yeah, I spoke to Michael Simpson, I think, uh, a few episodes ago, and he talked about how maybe it wasn't as much of a problem that we haven't passed an international treaty in a, a long while, but that we could really still propagate uh, new norms and rules through uh, smaller agreements, uh, either bilateral or small multilateral agreements eventually. Yeah, I, I believe norms are the way to go here. Um, like you said, it, it would be rather difficult to come up with an international binding treaty that's enforceable um, on, you know, the responsible use of space. I just don't see that happening anytime soon. But what we can do uh, is is have dialogue and develop these norms. And by norms, I mean start to behave in a way in space that you want others to behave and then um, as a collective point to that and say, this is a norm. This is the right behavior in space. This is not just for governments and government dialogue. I truly believe the industry needs to be doing this as well. And they are. Uh, there's one industry uh, association called CONFERS, the Consortium for Rendezvous and Proximity Operations, that has, uh, it's industry-led, and they're talking about best practices standards and norms of the behavior uh, on how to approach other satellites in space and how to operate on them and remove them for that matter. So I think these are fundamental and, and important um, dialogue going on um, either formally or ad hoc in between industries or between government and in industries. And then those NGOs facilitating those discussions are very important as well. And a shout out to Secure World Foundation for their recent space sustainability summit here in Washington, DC, uh, we found it, you know, quite successful, um, conference. 
Yeah, and I've, I've been lucky enough, uh, like I said, to have interviewed Michael Simpson, the former uh, executive director of the Secure World Foundation, and Chris Johnson, their space law advisor. Um, so I guess one last question on this topic. Would you say that the near-term outlook is good for global harmonization on space sustainability? I think this is a long-term effort. <laughs> so you can't, you cannot develop norms overnight. It has to be, um, it has to be organic as well. So, so there, there needs to be some driving, you know, function from the government. There needs to be a demand signal from the industry as well, which I'm seeing develop. It's been um, really industry has stepped up, I believe, in the last you know couple of years talking about this issue. Before it was very difficult to to get anything out of you know industry as a collective on the issue of space debris. Now you hear it mostly at conferences, you know, panelists, you know, vying for the chance to talk about how responsible they are. That's a great thing. Um, and then governments putting it into a policy, space policy directive three, um, it, you know, talks specifically about space traffic management, space sustainability, and even active debris removal. So we're on our way and I don't expect this to be overnight, but I, I do see it going in the right direction. I'm, I'm a vector type of person, right? You know, space is my vector, not my destination. So I see space sustainability. It's on the right vector. Um, we just got to, you know, keep the, the energy going in the right direction. Uh, by the way, I do really enjoy your analogies uh, to <laughs> physics. I think that that works. Uh, let's move to some general questions. Uh, what do you think is the biggest misconception in the general public about space policy right now? I, I believe the general public don't necessarily understand fully how much they rely on space and satellites uh, every day. And if they did, they would, they, they would care as much as they would the, you know, the environment here on earth. Um, and so we, we have a task ahead of us to educate the public on uh, the great things that can come from space and their, and their reliance on it and how it makes us a modern society uh, but we also need to tell them that, you know, after six decades of using space somewhat irresponsibly, it's time to uh, go down a different direction and prevent uh, the orbits from becoming too cluttered for usage because that will not benefit anyone. So I think that's the biggest misconception uh, for the public. And we also want them to know and educate them that we have solutions to mitigate space debris um, you know, design of smarter design of satellites, quicker deorbit timeframes, active deorbit measures, you name it. There are um, many solutions out there uh, to make sure that space is sustainable for all. And then are there any misconceptions in the industry about space policy uh, that you see? I, I, I find the industry is fairly well informed. Maybe the newcomers, um, they need to have the opportunity to see the policies and the regulations up front instead of building the tech first. Uh, I, I, I wish, <laughs> if I had one wish, it would be that every startup not only has engineers, but they, has a, they have like someone to lean on to tell them you know, what rules and regulations they're going to need to follow and, and, and how to go about that in an easy manner. 
Um, and one other thing that perhaps the industry, it's not a misconception, but uh, it's, it's something that needs to change. Um, you know, when, when saying uh, perhaps you should have debris mitigation measures or more stronger ones, often we encounter the, the comment, well, we're compliant with regulation. And that, that's all well and good, and they're following the law, and, and that's wonderful, except we have to ask ourselves, is the current regulation enough? So is it enough to be compliant nowadays? And I think the whole industry and the government are going through this exercise right now. Um, I can't tell you how many <laughs> you know, efforts there are right now on, on asking this question. The FCC, Commerce, FAA, you know, um, you know, all these dialogues that are going on. Uh, ad hoc and, and more formally, um, we're trying to decide what is, yes, you are compliant, but do we need to change the compliance and make it more uh, apt for the, you know, today's space environment where there's going to be thousands of satellites entering the orbit amongst the many, many, many pieces of orbital debris? Yeah, as um, as my previous episode's guest said, uh the biggest misconception among uh, new entrants into the industry is they they don't know what they don't know, um, and that can be that's a, a lesson everybody, no matter what their status is in the industry, has to double check themselves for every now and then. Um, what don't I know that I don't know? And that that goes to saying that you know this shouldn't be a difficult endeavor. This should be you know. The things that they need to know should be readily available. Uh, there should be, you know, access to uh, something on the website, maybe all gathered together um, so they can go. They, they should have mentors in the industry when it comes to mitigation of debris. This affects all of us. Um, so, you know, providing mentorship and advice um, early on. Is, is something that should happen as well. So uh, I'm with you on that, that uh, if you're a new company and you have a great idea for space technology, um, go seek out, be aware that the environment is, is a special one and go seek out some advice on what do you need to know when it comes to um, mitigating the or orbital debris, but also uh, playing a role, a strong role in this larger community of, of space entrepreneurs. All right, so let's move on to our final round of questions. Uh, this is the round where I ask uh, for your advice to some of our listeners in their different demographic groups. Uh, so what advice would you give to someone who is pre-law or pre-graduate school, uh, but is interested in uh, exploring a potential career in space policy? So th these are some of the favorite questions I have because um, I really do enjoy mentoring uh, younger folks. Uh, I am a, a mentor for the Brooke Owens Fellowship, uh, and I, I tend to um, help out those that feel that they don't fit in the industry, and, and there's always a way to fit people that are interested in space into the industry. So uh, I enjoy, you know, offering advice and, you know, helping these folks along. Um, so one common thing I often <laughs> tell, um, uh, you know, folks that I, ch I chat with 
is the value of resilience in this uh, industry. Um, you know, you, you, you're going to get knocked down a couple times <laughs> at least. And the question is how you react in, in getting up uh, and, and going after your goal uh, after the many no's, you know, knocking on doors and you either don't get answers or there's, you know, no interest, et cetera. So um, resilience is important. You know, you know, working through failure is important. Um, you know, in space industry, it's, it's risky. And, you know, even in those risks, uh, you're going to learn a lot even if you fail. So that's step one, the value of resilience. Um, two is, uh, you know, try everything. <laughs> so <laughs> that's what, kind of what I did, you know, tried a little this, tried a little that, um, and, and you'll find your right niche. And, and when you do try many things, whether it be policy or engineering or, or what have you, or operations, um, you'll have a, you know, a larger perspective on the entire um, topic of space. And here's the other thing. Um, I like I like when folks do the most technical or most you know hands-on things first in their career, um, because you know can the the progression kind of goes like this where you're you're deep in you understand the end users' needs for space, and at some point you know while you're engineering a widget or what have you, you'll you'll think you know I can do this better. We should do this this way. And maybe someone will say, yeah, it's a good idea. Or someone will say, no. If they say no, then you'll ask yourself why, or how can we make this process better? Or what do we need to change? And that is when you've entered policy. <laughs> when, you, when you've clicked over and you've decided you want to change things for the better. Um, and so that's a natural progression to go from the, the technical side or hands-on side into policy. Yeah, there's something similar uh, advice we've gotten for uh, law students was um, somebody told us, uh, choose a businessy discipline and practice in that first. So that's sort of like the lawyer's version of do something technical first, right? Work directly for a business or in a business environment. And then when you see in that environment, these are the challenges that these businesses are coming up against in uh, their space applications and activities, and you want to change that, then that's when you leap to the next level of getting into legislative lobbying and, and trying to change things at a higher level. Yeah, I agree. It, it is very, very much similar. You know, get your hands dirty early on, and then then you you come with some, you know, credibility later on saying, I've, I've been there, I've done that. And this is why this needs to change. And then are there any specific ways that current uh, students can stay involved while at the same time trying to juggle their classwork and coursework? There are many opportunities for students to be involved in the space community and to meet uh, and to leverage the knowledge that is, well, especially if you're in the D.C. area, there's an abundance of opportunity here. Um, first off, the Society of Space and Satellite Professionals International, the Mid-Atlantic chapter of that. This year, I'm, I'm honored to be president of that chapter, and we have a great board te uh, team, a great board put together to bring events that are specifically dedicated to the students in the area, and one being a, a new mentorship program where we match space professional to student. 
So if you look at SSPI, Mid-Atlantic Chapter, you'll find more details there. Um, and there are many, many free events around the area as well. Uh, think tanks have, you know, interesting topics and it's, it's open to the public. Um, and then my advice would be to get out there and meet the people, stay at the happy hours and, and meet the space professionals and uh, meet as many as you can um, because, uh, you know, you, A, you'll learn a lot and you'll gain some mentorship there, but you'll be recognizable too when you're seeking a job later on. And then do you have any advice for working professionals, folks who have already been uh, out of school and in the workforce for a few years and want to transition into space policy? And this might be an opportunity, given your background, any special advice for uh, military members who are transitioning out of service? Yeah, I, I've been in that <laughs> position. I've, I've knocked on doors and I've met with a lot of people and had a lot of informational interviews. And, um, I can tell you it's, it's, it's not easy. You'll, you'll have some days where you feel like a failure and some, some days you feel like you've done a really good, good job. Um, I think folks that come from the military, they're used to every two to three years, just doing something completely different. And this is no exception. Uh, for my personal experience, you know, when you're in the military for as long as I was, 23 years, you're, you're seeking another family, like your military family. And so um, fit and, and culture is a very important uh, item uh, to consider uh, when you're seeking a, a new position. Excellent. Excellent advice. Thank you so much, Charity, for uh, speaking with me today and sharing the benefit of your experience. Thanks a lot, Nathan. Thanks for having me. listening to the Astro Esquire podcast. For more information about this episode, visit our website at astroesq.com and check out our Patreon page to subscribe for access to bonus content. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, please leave us a review on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. The Astro Esquire podcast is hosted and produced by Nathan Johnson. Our theme music was composed by Kevin Bloom. Oh,